Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to Genistory. We agreed to do this. Last time, we talked about the 10th stage of genocide, denial, various methods of genocide denial, and the legality of it. This week, we're going to be talking about the various methods that we have for preventing genocide, how effective they are, and what we can do better in the future. Before I get too much into this, if you hear any rattling or shaking or anything in the background, there are cats in the room. They're in a playpen crate so that they do not chew on my wires, but they might show up on the recording. So enjoy that. Now, despite there being semi-consistent efforts at genocide prevention since 1948, there's been little actual success in this part of the field. What we're going to be going over in this month's episode is an outline of the various methods that exist for genocide prevention and why, despite all the work that's been put into prevention, we're really bad at it. The first and most obvious piece of genocide prevention legislation is the UN Convention on the Punishment and Prevention of the Crime of Genocide. The convention states that all member states commit themselves to genocide prevention. What the convention doesn't do is outline how exactly they intend to prevent those genocides, and therein lies the problem. However, we do know from research done by Barbara Harf, Professor Emeritus at the U.S. Naval Academy, that the more effective and engaged a country is in the international community, the less likely they are to commit genocide. Harf created a statistical model of risk analysis for genocide in 2003. Evidence supports Harf's theory, as her model has been shown to have a 74% accuracy rating, although she did deeply underestimate the ability of democracies to commit genocide. We tend to run into an issue with genocide prevention wherein we assume that it's only going to be third world developing unstable countries that can commit genocide, completely ignoring the genocides that happened in what we might call more developed countries. At the in 2005, at the UN World Summit, all member states endorsed what's called the Right to Protect Doctrine, what we're going to call R2P from here on in. R2P had been established in 2001 by the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty. It basically states that nations have a responsibility to protect their populations against genocide, crimes against humanity, etc., if states are unwilling or unable to protect their people, the UN can and will step in. Sovereignty is not absolute, but contingent on nations doing their job to protect their people. Now, nations are, by and large, utterly unwilling to relinquish their sovereignty for any reason. Gareth Evans, former Australian former minister, had this to say on the subject. Sovereignty thus hard-won and proudly enjoyed, is sovereignty not easily relinquished or compromised. However, 
what most nations fail to understand is that sovereignty is a responsibility. Now, for those of you who might not remember, I believe we went over this in episode one, but state sovereignty is the idea that states are in utter and absolute control of what happens inside their borders and that they are allowed to handle those matters however they wish without worrying about outside intervention. It's what stops larger nations like the United States or the UK, or it's what's supposed to stop them from interfering with smaller, less developed countries. It doesn't exactly work in practice as well as it does in theory, but it's a difficult thing to get nations to relinquish, especially countries who fought revolutions to win their sovereignty uh, in the face of Western imperialism. However, sovereignty is a responsibility. You need to be able to protect the people inside your borders. Um, and if you are unable or unwilling to do that, this is why we have an international community. That's the whole point of having a community. We come together as a group to handle those issues that individuals are unable to do. It works in you know, your, your family, it works in your, your city, your town, your state, your country, and it should work on the whole planet, same as it does on any of those other smaller scales, but it's hard to get people to cooperate. The International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, or the ICISS, outlines three forms of intervention, military force, economic sanctions, and arms embargoes. Despite the right to protect, the UN's response to modern genocides like those that happened in the Democratic Republic of Congo, northern Uganda, and Sudan ranged from tepid to non-existent. According to Nicholas Kristof, American journalist, the publishing industry manages to respond more quickly to genocide than world governments. And this is absolutely true. You will see news articles about genocides or calling something genocide far, 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 far before any kind of government will actually even go so far as to say, yes, this is genocide, let alone doing anything about it. Even when governments do respond to genocides, they might not actually do anything. Congress voted unanimously to recognize the genocide in Darfur, but also flat out refused to send troops. So their acknowledgement of that genocide was completely useless because they did then nothing about it. The International Committee of the Red Cross established seven core principles of humanitarian aid, and those principles are humanity, impartiality, neutrality, independence, voluntary service, unity, and universality. Modern wars make humanitarian aid more difficult because so much of the aid gets stolen. In Somalia, about 80% of the foreign aid got stolen. Humanitarianism is no longer insulated from politics as it had once been. Neutrality is getting more difficult. It's getting harder and harder to remain neutral or impartial when giving humanitarian aid because so many of modern wars are either genocide or ethnic cleansing or bear many of the classic hallmarks of those two crimes. In 2006, David Sheffer, former U.S. ambassador at large for war crimes issues, tried to establish the term atrocity crimes as a political term that would cover genocide, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, etc. Martha Minow, former dean of the Harvard Law School, talks at length about Sheffer's four barriers of effective action. One, the legal requirements for proving genocide are stringent and cumbersome. It's very difficult to, beyond a shadow of a doubt, prove that genocide is happening. And while you're trying to prove it, hundreds, thousands, millions of people might be dying. Two, 
there's an absence of well-defined stages leading up to genocide. While we used Gregory Stanton's 10 Stages of Genocide and the Pyramid of Hate or the Allport Scale to define those preliminary stages for genocide, they're not necessarily something that the UN or other international organizations actually use, despite their efficacy. Three, the use of legal terms in a political arena muddles things. And four, there's no easy public term for the collection of horrors the UN deals with. While atrocity crimes might be easier to parse for laymen, because we all know what a crime is, and we all know what an atrocity is, and we can put those two together to get a pretty comprehensive idea of what's covered, it also doesn't carry the emotional weight of genocide, and it doesn't actually offer any additional clarity. Minow and others find significant fault with Sheffer for his attempt. In 2008, Robert Nelson, professor emeritus from Purdue, wrote a counterfactual article on what would have happened had Churchill met with Hitler in 1938. This is something that could have or possibly was supposed to happen, but for whatever reason didn't wind up happening. Churchill never met with Hitler in 1938. Now, counterfactual history, what we might call what if the DC comic universe's Elseworlds or Marvel Universe's what if one shots is just we examine as best we can what might have happened if history had happened differently. The difficulty with counterfactual history is that you can't take it too far. We, we can't assume that because X happened, then Y, Z, A, B, and Q would also happen. It's just, if we changed X, what's the immediate ramifications of that change and then we leave it there. We don't take the analysis any farther. So Nelson wrote this counterfactual article about what might have happened if Churchill had met with Hitler in 1938. We don't really need to go into details of how that meeting might have gone because there's any thousands of ways that it could have gone, but Nelson makes some great points in what he calls the paradox of prevention. First, he says that the failure to intervene in genocide isn't a failure of policy. It is policy. If you intervene and fail you're blamed for the failure. If you intervene and succeed, there's no reward. A catastrophe averted is likely not to be viewed as a catastrophe. If your prevention techniques work and a catastrophe never materializes, people will wonder what the hell they spend all that money, time, and effort on. We could have possibly dealt with a similar situation with the current global pandemic, if we had all buckled down and taken the necessary prevention measures very early, we might have cut this off at the pass, and then we'd have people wondering what we spent all this time and effort on because the pandemic never materialized. And honestly, I would have preferred that to what's happening now, where thousands and thousands and thousands of people are coming down with this disease, and we've still got people calling it a hoax and refusing to wash their hands or just wear a goddamn face mask. Wear your fucking mask. I swear to God, just wear your fucking mask. But that's the problem with prevention. If you act accordingly and prevent the catastrophe from happening, then the majority of people will wonder if there was ever going to be a catastrophe at all. 
Maybe it was all just a, a hoax or we overreacted. This happened back in Y2K. There was the whole, you know, all of the computers and everything is going to shut down and then never materialize. And now we all think that Y2K is a hoax, completely ignoring the massive amounts of work that went on behind the scenes to prevent that catastrophe from happening. You should look up all of the work that went into preventing that catastrophe. In 2008, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and former Secretary of Defense William Cohen co-chaired the creation of something called Preventing Genocide, a Blueprint for U.S. Policymakers. It's also called the Albright-Cohen Report, and it established what's called the Genocide Prevention Task Force. In their report, they outline a series of recommendations that fall under the following categories. Effective leadership, early warning, early prevention, preventative diplomacy, military options, international action. They take these categories and they use them to talk to various parts of the U.S. government individually. They say to the president, demonstrate that genocide prevention is a national priority, develop policy for prevention, create interagency mechanisms for analysis and action. They say to Congress to increase funding for crisis response. The Director of National Intelligence should include risk of genocide in their annual report, which apparently they don't do now, and that's fucking wild that that's not included in the Director of National Intelligence's annual reports. There's nothing about risk of genocide in there. That's mind-boggling. We're not going to cover every detail included in the report because it's 174 pages, but we will cover some parts. Genocide early warning should be a priority for the intelligence community, and this implies that it, it wasn't before, which again is absolutely wild. The report encouraged the government to create a mass atrocities alert channel for people to write into. The State Department has something similar, so there's a model for it that we could very easily follow. The State Department has a dissent channel where people can write in with their criticisms of government policy. Not that it's really used very often. Warnings of genocide should trigger an immediate policy review. The report seems to indicate that genocide can only occur in what they call failed states, and they make repeated specific mentions of Africa, which is very racist and imperialistic and ignores the various genocides that the United States has participated in or just committed themselves. One of the main reasons why a number of African countries, and we should point out that there are 54 countries in Africa, so to talk about Africa as a conglomerate whole is ridiculous. It's it's phenomenally diverse and varied across the whole, but a lot of African countries are still dealing with the ravages of Western imperialism that began in 1884 with the Berlin Conference and the Scramble for Africa. So these quote-unquote failed states are largely the result of America's really terrible intervention. Also, Britain and Germany and Italy and Spain and Belgium. Ooh, boy, are we going to talk about Belgium in a later episode with King Leopold and the Democratic Republic of Congo. That is, ugh, that's a nasty story. There are three main issues with the U.S.'s relationship with genocide prevention. They fail to recognize genocide almost every time that it occurs. When they do recognize genocide, they fail to intervene, and efforts to intervene have always been inadequate. We refuse categorically to do what is necessary to actually prevent genocide. The Albright-Cohen report is heavily criticized by genocide scholars. It insists that genocides really only occur in failed states, which is patently untrue. 
tensions exist in genocidal states, and those tensions contribute to genocide, but most genocidal states are stable. The Ottoman Empire, the U.S., Indonesia, Germany, etc., these were all relatively stable states when their genocides occurred. They were all dealing with some kind of economic tension and issues of nationalism, but they weren't failed states by uh, any stretch of the imagination. Because the report is based on a failed state narrative, most of its recommendations are useless because that narrative is wrong. It recommends developmental aid, which is useless in countries with a functioning economy. The report focuses on early warning, despite the fact that the U.S. had early warning of Rwanda, Darfur, and Serbia, and still did nothing. Also, the implicit assumption of the report is that the U.S. won't be committing the genocide or crimes against humanity. The report claims that genocide threatens U.S. values and national interests. Despite the U.S. providing material, logistical, or political support to the genocidal regimes during East Timor, Guatemala, Indonesia, the Kurdish genocide, etc., it's often U.S. policy that supports genocide if it aligns with military or corporate interests. So the idea that genocide threatens U.S. values and national interests is utterly ridiculous. Genocide is a U.S. value and a national interest. We also have to take into account that both Albright and Cohen have actively tried to block U.S. recognition of the Armenian genocide. And there's no mention of the Armenian Genocide in the report. They call it a forced exile or an atrocity, but refuse to call it what it actually is, which is a genocide. So because the report is part of genocide denialist efforts in regard to Armenia, it actually hurts prevention efforts. The report also claims that the U.S. has a good track record with regard to intervention, which is an absolute lie. When genocide occurs in destabilized countries, especially in South or Latin America, the U.S. is usually one of the root causes. Their bombing of Cambodia during the Vietnam War was one of the causes of the Cambodian genocide. We'll go into more detail on that in four or so months when we talk about the Cambodian genocide, but long story short, the U.S. bombed a lot along the Vietnam-Cambodian border and trying to beat the Viet Cong, and doing that greatly destabilized parts of Cambodia, allowing Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge to come into power. It destabilized the whole region. One of the things that you have to understand is that the U.S. was founded on the genocide of the Native Americans. It's the core of our history. There was direct killings in the forms of the Indian Wars and scalp bounties, destruction of food and resources. There were forced deportations. There were roughly 10 million natives before colonization, and only 237,000 by the year 1900. Some scholars state that by the year 1900, some 90% of the native population was killed either through direct action by colonists or American citizens or through the ravages of disease, much of which was introduced incidentally to the population when the colonists first came over, they brought with them diseases like smallpox, tuberculosis, typhus, typhoid, etc. and so forth. Diseases which the native population had no built-in immunities to, like the people of Europe did. And so when those diseases came in, they found, or they caused what we would call a virgin soil epidemic. This is in no way to say that the United States is in any way blameless for the deaths of so many natives. They actively participated in and caused uh, millions of those deaths, but, you know, some of it was just the result of disease and was completely incidental. However, genocidal rhetoric against Native Americans was ridiculously common throughout history, um, so much so that it was picked up by presidents and famous authors alike. Theodore Roosevelt, you all know Theodore Roosevelt, 
allegedly great guy, gave us all of our national parks. There's a statue of him outside the Museum of National History in New York City, once said that the only good Indian is a dead Indian. And famous author Frank L. Baum, the author of The Wizard of Oz and all of its attendant Oz books, had this to say following the Battle of Wounded Knee. The best safety of the frontier settlement will be secured through the total annihilation of the few remaining Indians. Better that they should die than live the miserable wretches they are. These ideas, held by both presidents and famous authors alike, weren't the uncommon ravings of madmen. They were commonly held beliefs amongst the general American public. But to return to the report, the Albright-Cohen report cannot change the deep relationship the U.S. has with genocide. It points out that many people will be suspicious of U.S. military intervention, but fails to point out how valid that suspicion is. The U.S. regularly, quote-unquote, intervenes in the interests of protecting or establishing democracy in other countries, but this in no way legitimizes U.S. intervention. The U.S. regularly supports oppressive regimes in the name of freedom. Uh, especially in the face of communism or socialism. You find this a lot in CIA-led coups in South and Central America, as the U.S. did whatever it could to overthrow any vestige of socialism or communism that popped up in these countries, often in doing so propping up very violent military dictatorships who abused human rights greatly. Many human rights violations that happen in the Western Hemisphere can be linked directly to the United States. The U.S. runs something called the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, and the School of the Americas, where they train counterinsurgents for wars in South, Central, and Latin America. The school has been blamed for the human rights abuses of their former students. In the early 1980s, they were accused of teaching techniques of repression aimed at civilians. They deny those charges, but those charges keep coming in. So overall, all, the Albright-Cohen report is useless, unfortunately. Prevention efforts in the U.S. continue, and in 2010, another report was written, this one by the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. It was called MARO, M-A-R-O, Mass Atrocity Response Operations. MARO seeks to enable the U.S. and the international community to prevent genocide through military action. Unlike the Albright-Cohen report, which split its focus amongst various intervention methods, MARO focuses exclusively on military intervention. Uh, MARO and the Genocide Prevention Task Force, which was established by the Albright-Cohen report, work together to advance intervention efforts. Morrow seeks to advance itself through developing operational concepts, a tailored planning guide, and tabletop exercises. I searched online for the tabletop genocide prevention exercises that Morrow uses and couldn't find any details, but uh, if anyone happens to find anything about that, that'd be super cool and please send that my way. One of the issues with genocide prevention is that the U.S. doesn't view Morrow's as a unique operational challenge. So they view uh, mass atrocity response operations as just another kind of standard military intervention, not realizing that it's a whole different kettle of fish that requires different techniques and supplies and different training. There are three distinct aspects of Maros. Multi-party dynamics, those multi-parties being the perpetrators, the victims, the interveners, the bystanders, etc. The illusion of impartiality, Interveners will say that they are only trying to defend human rights, but perpetrators will feel as though they are being attacked directly. And escalatory dynamics. Intervention can actually ramp up killings of victims in response to those intervention efforts. Now, there are eight 
key operational and political implications of Maros. You need different info for planning a Maro than for other military planning. In advance, interagency planning is key because of escalatory dynamics. You need a lot of planning ahead of time for these kind of things because you need to be able to, when you begin intervening, just go, 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 go. You can't waste any more time planning at that point because your intervention might spark uh, an escalation of violence, and so you need to be able to respond to that on the fly without needing to go back to the drawing board. You might need to prioritize a quick response over a big one. And you should take advantage of both high and low tech witnesses. High tech being satellites and cameras and you know things of that nature, aerial camera drones, uh, and low tech being just regular people who've witnessed these crimes. Another operational implication is can we actually treat the root causes or are we just going to be attacking the symptoms? Because if we just treat the symptoms and not the disease, the disease will just pop up again, right? It's a very Patch Adams approach to things. You treat the disease, you win, you lose, you treat the patient, you win every time. Love that movie. Maros will need to be aware of the humanitarian work that will need to be done as well. While the large focus of Maros is on military intervention in these instances, they have to be aware of the on-the-ground humanitarian work that will have to be done as there are victims left behind as they push perpetrators back. They need to be aware of how to distinguish between the victims and perpetrators and not get involved in revenge killings. And they need civilian and political guidance to understand local context. This is one of the biggest keys in genocide prevention. Every single instance of genocide is different and unique and is caused by different local contexts and issues. And if we don't understand the local context of these crimes against humanity, we'll never be able to prevent them effectively. So here are some general Morrow approaches. What's called uh, saturation, which is to secure a large area of land that might then become some kind of uh, safe area. Oil spot which is to systematically secure limited areas in a clear, hold, build approach. So you clear a small area, you hold it against counterattacks, and then you build something on that that can be useful in your prevention uh, methods. Separation, which is to create a DMZ, similar to right what happened in, or what, what is still occurring in uh, between North and South Korea. There is still a demilitarized zone, which is home of millions upon millions upon millions of landmines. Creating safe areas, uh, creating internally displaced persons camps, refugee camps. We would create these safe areas inside our uh, saturation or oil spot areas. Partner enabling, uh, just provide material and support for host nation victims. Containment, strikes, blockades, and establishing no-fly zones to try and contain the perpetrators. And then just defeat the perpetrators in a classic war type scenario. There are six Morrow military phases. Phase zero, called shape, is prevent the crisis or prepare contingencies. If we can, before we even get to military intervention, just prevent this crisis from occurring, then great. If we can't, we prepare a contingency plan. Phase one, deter, manage the crisis, deter escalation, and prepare intervention. It's our our planning stage where we try and stop things at least from getting any worse and we prepare to move forward with some kind of on-the-ground intervention. Phase two, seize the initiative. We conduct initial deployments. You're sending people out and getting them ready to actually do anything. Phase three, dominate. 
stop atrocities, control areas. This is where we have our saturation, our oil spots, establishing safe zones, defeating the perpetrators. Phase four, stabilize. Establish a secure environment. So these last two phases happen after the genocide has been curtailed and stopped. This is where we start to reestablish some kind of status quo. We re-empower civil governments and authorities to try and bring about some measure of stability. And phase five is to enable the civil authority, right? Hand the reins back over to the local governments and hope that they can continue with things on their own. The Morrow Handbook seems to believe that witnesses to atrocities can halt violence uh, if perpetrators are afraid of being held personally responsible for crimes, which is completely ridiculous because the perpetrators don't care about being held responsible for these crimes. They care about destroying an entire ethnic group. And as long as that ethnic group is dead and gone, there's going to be no one to hold them responsible for those crimes. And as we've seen, international intervention is slow, giving perpetrators a great deal of time to handle these things. The handbook runs through a sample plan and its implementation, but we're not going to go into that here. It does provide the shortcomings of its own planning recommendations inside the handbook, which is pretty cool. For example, setting up a demilitarized zone in an intervention effort will do nothing to transform the society. While the handbook does a good job of recognizing how fraught and complex a Moro situation can become and how intervention can actually hurt if not handled properly, it relies heavily on the Albright-Cohen report and fails to address the shortcomings of said report. So despite the handbook attempting to include civilians in the planning, it's ridiculously jargon-heavy. The acronym key at the back of the handbook is three full pages. For the most part, jargon is largely unnecessary. For example, the Morrow handbook calls a helicopter a rotary wing asset. I don't know in what universe we need to refer to a helicopter as a rotary wing asset, but fine. No, not fine. Jargon is just a form of exclusionary elitism so that laymen reading your report or handbook will be unable to understand it and you can just have your little boys club of we're so cool with our fucking jargon. It's ridiculous. Just call it a goddamn helicopter. The Morrow Handbook creates a generic template for Morrow planning despite saying that they weren't going to do that. The template that they created isn't even based off of a real genocide. It's merely based on theory. Details are only included abstractly. There are too many lists and not enough analysis in the handbook. It reads like a geometry textbook without illustrations. It relies on brief historical overviews of situations instead of seeking to understand the extant nuances of those situations. The Morrow Handbook has, uh, in its pre-planning stages, groups of uh, American and foreign historians whose job it is to create kind of uh, an abstract, a brief historical overview of the issues that they're dealing with instead of just going to the people who are actually dealing with those atrocities and asking for the actual nuance of things. A brief historical overview is going to be useless in these situations because you're going to miss so many of the important details and nuances and context of what's caused these issues. Shallow accounts of atrocities can be worse than no accounts. No account of the atrocities at least doesn't misrepresent facts with a shallow analysis of what's been going on. Now, too much specificity would have made the handbook too large and unwieldy, but there should at least have been some mention of actual historical evidence and real-world examples to prove their theories. However, no such luck. 
The handbook treats the U.S. military as an abstraction, as if its members are all robots who will perfectly follow perfect orders, as if the U.S. military doesn't have its own long history of human rights abuses. The authors of the Morrow Handbook are far too optimistic in some of their approaches. While discussing PSYOPs, psychological operations, they uh, recommend to inform all potential perpetrators that they have the option of behaving responsibly or they will be held accountable for their actions. And does anyone actually think that that would do anything? Don't commit the genocide or we're going to hold you responsible for your actions. We're watching you guys. Come on, let's be realistic. By the time you've decided to wage a genocide, you don't care about being held responsible for it. You're just going to do it. The report also includes some obstructionist euphemisms. Civilian casualties become collateral damage. Propaganda is strategic communication. They advise using travel advisories to put pressure on perpetrator leaders, but this is only going to cause civilians to now view all travel advisories as suspect. Don't use public safety tools as propaganda. It's dangerous, it's wrong-headed, and it's going to have far more of a negative impact on the people you're trying to save and on the civilians in your own countries as it is on the actual perpetrators. The handbook refuses, flat out refuses, to recognize any critical points about the U.S. military. Everything that the U.S. military does and everything that's ever been called out on is either an honest mistake or a deliberate misinterpretation of what happened or they just omitted it entirely. The handbook was written in an idealized, ahistorical vacuum. The U.S. military often participates in human rights abuses. The rape of Nanjing, Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, just to name a few. Military leaders are encouraged to ignore ethical and moral criticisms of Maros. The military is always right, and critics are always wrong. That is probably the most dangerous thing about Maros that are mentioned in this report, the idea that military leaders should just ignore criticisms of what they're doing. The most effective strategy the U.S. military could employ to stop human rights abuses would be to stop abusing human rights. Close down Guantanamo Bay, stop supporting dictators, stop waging imperialistic wars for capitalist resources, etc. There are so many things that we could do to prevent human rights abuses, and it largely just involves stop being a dick. The handbook was likely influenced by Samantha Power and her book A Problem from Hell, wherein she paints 20th century genocides as the result of a lack of U.S.-U.N. military intervention. This fails to address the 20th century genocides that the U.S. was actually involved in. Genocides of the Native Americans, uh, Indonesia, East Timor, Guatemala, Chile. The handbook is definitely ahead of its time, but only insofar as a U.S. military that could implement it successfully doesn't exist. The Morrow Handbook and the Albright-Cohen Report, two of the biggest pieces of genocide prevention documentation that the U.S. has written up in the past 10 years, completely useless. The African Union has its own form of genocide prevention. They created something called the African Standby Force in 2003. Standing forces at regional headquarters around Africa would be constantly available to step in in matters of human rights abuses, crimes against humanity, 
genocide, etc. The ASF claimed that it would be ready in 2010 to put a robust force in the field in 14 days' time to prevent genocide. It's still not ready to do that. This was the sixth and most difficult of all their missions. Scenario 1, African Union and Regional Military Advice to a Political Mission. Scenario 2, African Union Regional Observer Mission co-deployed with a UN mission. Scenario 3, Standalone African Union Regional Observer Mission. Scenario 4, African Union Regional Peacekeeping Force for Chapter 6 and Preventative Deployment Mission and Peacebuilding. Scenario 5, African Union Peacekeeping Force for Complex Multidimensional Peacekeeping Missions, including those involving low-level spoilers. And Scenario 6, African Union intervention in genocide situations where the international community does not act promptly. So they wanted to be able to put that force together for Scenario 6 in 14 days. It's a far shorter time frame than any of the other scenarios, and it's likely in response to the rapid escalation of violence in Rwanda, another genocide that we're going to be going over in a few months' time. The Rwandan genocide had roughly 1 million deaths over 100 days, and some reports have that 800,000 people were killed in the first six weeks alone. So that 14-day deployment still wouldn't absolutely prevent the Rwandan genocide, but it would go a long way towards greatly reducing the deaths if they could do it effectively. However, the ASF doesn't have the infrastructure or funding to be able to complete its mandate on its own. And the U.S. and the U.N. don't want to get involved because helping Africa isn't in their national or personal interests. There's also a certain amount of anti-imperialist sentiment in the AU, and I don't blame them considering the massive amounts of abuses of the scramble for Africa or Germany in Namibia um, with the Herero people. So the AU wants African solutions for African problems, which again, no one can blame them for, but... They just don't have, the African Union doesn't have the infrastructure or the funding to be able to do this on their own. So for the time being, the ASF is going to remain largely useless in instances of genocide prevention. One of the largest potential issues with genocide prevention is how focused it is on external prevention, which usually only materializes after killings have started. The focus on genocide prevention should shift from external intervention to internal. International intervention sucks anyway. UN external intervention in genocides is terrible. So why bother putting in so much funding and time and effort in a thing that you're terrible at doing and don't like doing anyway? Just get ahead of it before it happens. External interventions often ignore local contexts in favor of cookie-cutter approaches. You can't use a cookie-cutter approach in terms of genocide prevention because those local contexts inform why and how it happened. Plus, there's a massive lack of resources. The UN peacekeeping budget for 2014 was $7.83 billion. Now, at face value, that sounds like a lot of money. However, the United States defense budget for the year of 2014 was $631.51 billion. That's, that was the defense budget just for the U.S. Now compare that to the U.N.'s peacekeeping budget and how much larger an area of land the U.N. has to deal with as opposed to the U.S. And you see how massively underfunded U.N. peacekeeping efforts are. The book Opting Out of War reviewed 14 case studies of nations who prevented outbreaks of mass violence. 
there was little to no international intervention in all of those cases. The Center for Peace Building and Reconciliation in Sri Lanka is actively working to reduce extremism. A former rebel leader in North Kivu, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, is working to convince combatants to give up their guns. Internal intervention is not only more effective, but it's less expensive. It can also get ahead of the curve and possibly prevent genocide before it begins, something that external intervention can't really do. There is not enough research into internal community-based peace efforts. Opting out of war has those 14 case studies, but beyond that, there's really not a lot of research that's been done into nations who have managed to or made attempts to internally prevent genocides. Jonathan Leder Maynard, a lecturer in international relations at Oxford, and Susan Benish, professor at Harvard, set down six justificatory mechanisms for what they call dangerous speech leading up to a genocide. They did this in 2013. Dehumanization. Here are just some examples of dehumanization in various genocides throughout history. Cockroaches, microbes, parasites, yellow ants, logs, packages, Satan, demons, devils. These were used in genocides like the Rwandan genocide, the Cambodian genocide, um, the Japanese crimes against humanity, uh, against China in World War II, uh, the Jews during the Holocaust. Dehumanization strips moral protections from a group. Guilt attribution is one of these mechanisms. The target group is guilty of heinous past crimes against the in-group, and that guilt is then collective. Opposite that is threat construction. Tales of future wrongdoing can be more powerful than past crimes. Uh, genocide then becomes self-defense because the leaders of this nation and the people that they're mobilizing to commit this genocide aren't just seeking to destroy a target group. They are actively, quote unquote, trying to protect themselves against an aggressor. The destruction of alternatives is another one of these mechanisms. Violence is presented as the only real option. It's a race war or a class struggle. It's the nature of war. Or in the case of colonial genocides, it's the iron law of nature and progress that the strong devour the weak. Because the violence is inevitable, we don't have to engage morally with the choice to be violent. It's just an inevitable thing. Virtue talk is another one of these these last two are words that Maynard and Benish made up for their justificatory mechanisms. Virtue talk, or the valorization of violence. Violence becomes linked to courage, duty, and honor. It's very wrapped up in the ideas of toxic masculinity, that it's manly and good to be violent, that violence is inherently courageous, and that it is our duty to engage in violence for the protection of the state. Not participating makes you weak and treasonous, and therefore you have to participate in this violence. The last one is future bias. By committing this genocide, we'll be making the future better. So much better that the cost in lives is worth it. That by just removing this group, everyone else's lives will be infinitely better. And so it's worth the cost of these just 6 million lives to make the lives of the other 7 billion so much better. So Maynard and Benish set those down as mechanisms by which states justify genocides. Now in 2013, former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, unveiled what he called the Human Rights Upfront Initiative. Details on the initiative are light due to the confidential nature of UN planning. 
but the Upfront Initiative is closely related to past reports on Rwanda and based on UN intervention in Sri Lanka in the 1970s. After the Rwandan genocide, then-Secretary General Kofi Annan had the Rwanda Commission of Inquiry review UN policy. The determination was that the entire UN system was broken. No shit, Sherlock. There was a distinct lack of resources or will put into prevention. Also, UN peacekeeping operations take too long to plan and mobilize. The UN doesn't have a standing army, and peacekeeping forces are drawn from and supplied by member states, which leads to a massive difference in troop effectiveness. The Upfront Initiative concludes that UN peacekeepers should be authorized to defend human rights and take military action without needing specific permission to engage from the UN. That's what tied Romeo Dallaire's hands during Rwanda in 1994. He sent a telegram to the UN, I believe in January of 1994, we'll go over this again in more detail when we talk about Rwanda, asking for permission to engage because he'd received reports from a local contact, from a local contact, that the inter and the various Hutu militias were gathering lists of Tutsis and that they claimed to be able to kill, I believe, some 2,000 Tutsi per day. But the UN told Dallaire to not intervene in this uh, in regional politics. Don't get involved in this internal matter. It's a civil war. We're not getting involved. Just protect the European nationals. Keep your peacekeepers out of the line of fire. Don't do anything. The Upfront Initiative has UN regional divisions scan all countries within their divisions every three months for early warning signs of genocide. Unfortunately, the UN has a nasty habit of only publishing guidance materials in English, which means that it's unreadable by a large majority of people. Frankly, I think that the UN should have just wound up using Esperanto like it was originally planned to. Esperanto was created in 1877, meant to be a universal language. It was made by a Polish ophthalmologist, L.L. Zamenhof. Now, obviously, 1887 is long before the UN actually existed. Uh, 1887 was shortly after the Berlin Conference, where European nations got together to divide up Africa. But Zamenhof meant it to be a universal language, that we could all speak in instances of dealing with each other internationally. That way we didn't have to all learn French and German and Spanish and English and Japanese and Chinese. Everyone all around the world who was going to deal with other countries internationally would just learn Esperanto, and then we would all be able to communicate with that language. But for whatever reason, it never caught on, and so we're left with having to—the UN just publishes stuff in English, and then everyone else has to worry about trying to translate it themselves. The good thing about the Upfront Initiative's action plans is that they don't really require approval from member states. There's a lot of overlap between the Upfront Initiative and the Right to Protect. And hopefully in the future, we'll start to see better and better results from the Upfront Initiative and Right to Protect initiatives. But for right now, we don't have much. The problem with the article that we have on the Upfront Initiative is that it's also very jargon-heavy, as a lot of these articles are, as if they're written exclusively for professionals, them having no interest in anyone else ever reading these things. It's important for the average layperson to have a firm understanding of genocide prevention so that we can actually do stuff about it and that we can participate in these initiatives, but there's no real interest in that. The U.S. has no coherent policy of genocide prevention, according to Robin Gregory, though it does, at least on the surface, recognize the need for it. Hillary Clinton said, We must act before the wood is stacked 
where the match is struck. Now, there are two basic approaches to genocide prevention, according to Robin Gregory, a senior research scientist in decision research at the University of Oregon. He said in 2018 that we can either rely on past experiences and informed intuition, or we can make decision-making a discipline. Relying on past experiences and informed intuition tends to get faster results, but it gets you more biased short-term solutions. It views decision-making as an art, something that happens sort of on the fly and ad hoc. Ad hoc is as needed. Or decision-making as a discipline, right, as a, a science, involves a group of experts and careful study and analysis. This leads to slower decision-making, but more long-term solutions. And ideally, we should probably use both of these to create solutions, rely on past experiences and informed intuition in the short term to begin prevention efforts, and then while that's happening, have a group of experts, both local and international, carefully study and analyze the situation to make more nuanced long-term solutions. Gregory recommends building a means-ends network. This graphically demonstrates the relationship between decisions, uncertainties, and outcomes. It establishes specific metrics that allow us to measure results and variables. One of the things we have to be aware of in regard to genocide prevention is psychic numbing, also known as compassion fatigue. As issues get bigger and bigger, and as the number of victims climb, it becomes increasingly more abstract and harder for the average person to maintain a consistent level of emotional connection. The issue of genocide can seem too big to actually do anything about. We also often worry that the cost of intervention will be higher than we're willing to pay, so we end up ranking national interests above civilian lives. Neither of Gregory's systems are better than the other, nor are they really comprehensive enough to be of any real use, but they're a start on paper that we can build from. We also run into issues of psychic numbing with... Uh, or compassion fatigue with, for example, it has been, as I look this up here, it has been 100 and, at the time of recording, it has been 115 days since Brianna Taylor was shot by police in her home. And Brianna Taylor's death is just one in the vast litany of people of color who have been murdered by police in recent days. There have been daily protests all around the world to try and do something to prevent police brutality. And as time goes on, and as there are more and more issues to deal with, because we're also dealing with a global pandemic, there are still children and adults in concentration camps on the southern border. But we haven't heard anything about that in a long time. I saw an article recently about pandemic responses in those camps being severely lacking, but by and large, we haven't really talked about those concentration camps in a good long while because it keeps going on and on and on. 115 days, that's over three months, almost four months since Breonna Taylor was murdered. And one of the police officers who was involved in that shooting has been fired, but the other two still have their jobs, and none of them have been arrested. Arrest the cops who murdered Breonna Taylor. Let's just get that out of the way right now. We need significant and massive amounts of reform because the police institution in our country is inherently racist. When you become a police officer in the United States, you take an oath to uphold all laws, and many of those laws were put in place to uphold a racist system. So by extension, all cops are then supporting and upholding a racist system. Now, some people might say that it's, you know, not all cops and there are good cops, but 
while individual cops might be good people outside of their job, there are no good cops because of how they uphold this system. Also, we tend to see that any cops who actually try and reform the system from the inside tend to get fired pretty quickly for not towing the party line. As these issues go on and on and on and on and on, and as we continue fighting for longer and longer, and as nothing really tends to change, we can just get tired of constantly fighting. And it's important that we remain aware that these issues haven't gone away just because a large number of people have stopped talking about them. These issues aren't trends. They're not something that, you know, you just get to join in on as a fad. These are constant fights and struggles that need to continue in the days and weeks and months and years going forward as we continue to seek systemic change, as we continue to try and tear down these horrible and oppressive systems and build something better that will actually uh, involve you know, freedom and equality for all peoples. There are no easy methods in genocide prevention, and as we can see, we don't really have any good methods of genocide prevention. There are no easy ones, and we don't have good ones. Our best bet seems to be early internal detection and prevention. We want to head off the genocide before it gets to the actual genocide stage. That's why, in my opinion, tools like the Allport Scale, the Pyramid of Hate, and the 10 stages of genocide are so important. We have to stop looking at genocide as just the killings and start looking at it as the systemic issues that allow us to make mass violence permissible or even celebrated. It always, always, always starts with words. And while the debate on what we should do about hate speech will continue for decades to come, something has to be done to combat this dangerous speech. Susan Benish has her framework called Counterspeech. Uh, we won't go into that here, but you can read about it yourself at dangerousspeech.org backslash counterspeech. So unfortunately, despite this being probably our longest episode to date so far, we don't have any good methods of genocide prevention. The international community, the UN, the European Union, the African Union, the United States, they all have basic plans on paper but no real ways or resources or political will to actually do anything to prevent genocide. Our prevention methods are all wrapped up in external military-based interventions and are mostly being done by militaries who are engaged in human rights abuses or genocides pretty regularly, so there's not much good that they can actually do. So it then comes down to all of you individual people to take note of the pre-stages of genocide while they're happening and do our absolute best to call out problematic speech, hate speech, dangerous speech, whatever we want to call it, when it happens and try and prevent it on our own local levels and to, I don't know, run for local office, uh, email, call your politicians and, you know, try and get them involved in this. There are some politicians who don't absolutely suck and are doing things to try and combat this violence in speech that occurs every day in our country. And if we don't stop the speech that normalizes these ideas and stop the ideas that normalize the actions and stop the actions that normalize the violence and stop the violence that normalizes its genocide, we're never going to actually do anything about this. We got to start at the 
lowest possible level, the level of speech and ideas, and we have to stop it there. This is the end of our first arc on metadata concerning the field of genocide studies. Next month, we'll be beginning our deep dive into the seminal genocide case studies, starting with the genocide that spawned an entire field of study, the Armenian Genocide. If you like what you heard here, follow us on social media at GenistoryPod on Twitter, facebook.com backslash genistorypod or you can send an email to genistorypod at gmail.com if you have any questions comments uh, or topics that you'd like to hear about if you'd like more of just me in your life you can find me on twitter at prof john strange or on facebook at john lestrange colon historian if you're looking for something to read during this quarantine you can find both of my books representations of genocide in cartoons and representations of genocide in video games on amazon they're available in paper book and ebook formats please give both of those a rate and review while you're at it we have no new reviews for the podcast this month so if you would please rate review and subscribe to genistory on your favorite podcatcher it helps us get seen so other people can find us thank you to kevin mcleod over at incompetech for our show music thank you to the app hatchful and my amazing wife for designing and then editing our logo i'm john this has been genistory we agreed to do this and arrest the cops who murdered Brianna Taylor. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 